All right, last week, one of the final statements that Pastor Dan made was, our worship is not based on our circumstances, but on the character of God. Remember that statement? Does that make sense to you? With that in mind, and having just experienced Thanksgiving week, you may have had Thanksgiving day, we had Thanksgiving week, it was like mini Hanukkah at our house. It was Tuesday, it was Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we kicked them out late last night, they would have stayed longer but we had Thanksgiving week. But having just experienced that, I want us to look intentionally at Dothan this morning. Now, Dothan is not a Hebrew word meaning good grief. I hope this guy doesn't preach for 45 minutes. It is a city. It's a city. It's uh, north of Shechem. It's five miles southwest of Jenin. I can see the relief on all of your faces. You're like, oh, that's where it is. Oh, because I thought it was in Saginaw. But no, it's, it's there. All right, let me do it a different way. It's towards, like if Israel's like this, it's towards the topish, the topish part of Israel. How's that? It's up there towards the top. Two well-known biblical events took place in Dothan, uh, one involving Joseph in Genesis 37 and one involving Elisha in 2 Kings 6. And before we look at those two stories, I want to explain to you that location matters. In the real estate world, the old adage is location that's right, and uh, I won't go that far as far as the scriptures because there's a whole lot more than just location, location, location that matters, but I think too many times as we're reading through the scriptures, we just skip over locations. That place is hard to, to pronounce. I don't know what that guy's name is, and so we read things like so-and-so went to such-and-such such a place, and then we get to the story. Well, the so-and-sos in such-and-such such a place is a lot of times you can almost do without them, but they have a meaning. They have a purpose. After all, the whole Bible is inspired by God, and so the locations matter. And uh, in fact, when I was a youth, I would do that, such and such a place, and so-and-so person, you know, those kind of things. And then it, somewhere in my, as a, as a young man, I realized that you're missing, I'm, I'm missing some of the details, some of the, the dots could be connected if I would just pay attention to the names and the places. And so one of the very first aha moments for me was, a, and I've talked about this a long time ago, was this little city called Jabesh Gilead. In 1 Samuel 11, uh, there's this city, and it is under siege, by the, by the Ammonites, and they basically, the people of this city say, hey, we'll surrender and we'll be subject to you, just, just, just don't hurt us. We don't want to fight. And, uh, because they were so outnumbered, it wasn't even close. And the Ammonite king said, that all sounds good, except I want to add one part. Um, I wanna, we want to gouge out the right eye of every single person here. That way we can bring disgrace upon Israel. Well, that didn't sound as good as just the retreat and, you know, the, the first plan. But they said, well, give us a week to think about this. And so they gave them a week, which I think is kind of a bad idea. If you've got the enemy down, just stomp on their head and get it over with. But I'm glad they gave them a week because these are the, the children, part of the children of Israel. So they gave them a week, and in that week, they managed to get news down to the other tribes. And they weren't exactly all working together at that time in history. And, but they got news down there, and this guy who wasn't king yet, but his name was Saul, he heard about it. And while everybody else was just freaking out and sad, he heard about it, and the Spirit of God fell upon him, and this righteous anger rose up in him, and he basically rallied the entire tribes and said, you know what, we're going, and if you don't, there will be trouble for you. And they raised up as one, and they went to this city, 300,000 plus strong, and they defeated the Ammonites. Years later, in Samuel, 1 Samuel 31, 21 chapters later, a lot of years later, those same people that were rescued that day 
found out that that same guy, Saul, he had died in battle on the mountain of Gilboa with his sons. And even though Saul hadn't been doing so great as a king, they remembered what he had done for them years and years earlier. And they went like Navy SEAL Team 6 style, like during the night. And they rescued Saul's headless body off of the walls of Bethshan at night and brought him back so they could properly, properly bury him. If you don't catch Jabesh Gilead in both those stories, you miss the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is we honor people. You know, repaying good for good, remembering what's happened in the past. You, you just read over such and such a place, these people were under siege, such and such a people went and got Saul. You miss the bigger story, and the bigger story is honor. So again, back to this location. Location matters. There's another story in Ezekiel. I was painting the house about maybe two years ago, and uh, does anybody love painting? Like, yeah. Does anybody hate painting? I mean, like, not even like, not in the, it's just, oh, I just hate painting. I hate painting. And you got to paint the whole house, and you got to lay down the blue paint, the tape, and then you got to change the blue tape to the baseboards, and you got to paint some more, and then you got to put a second coat, and you got to trim, and then you got to retouch up. I just hate painting. And it was like a, a two day event. Well, after like five hours, don't you get tired of listening to music? Even if it's like Christian music or worship music, I just get tired of music. And sports radio just talks about the same things over and over and over in the middle of the week. So I had to, so I was like, you know what, I'm going to listen to a U version app, and uh, so I listened to the Bible, and I was like, what's something I haven't read in a long time? Ezekiel. Anybody read Ezekiel this week? Did you really? Wow. There's like three things in Ezekiel, and everything else just seems like they just repeat themselves, and it's weird. I mean, weird stuff in Ezekiel. Not a lot of Sunday school lessons to our kids are out of Ezekiel, because it's a weird stuff. I mean, read Ezekiel. Listen to Ezekiel. Well, I decided, you know what, I'm painting. I'm just going to listen to the whole thing. So I hit play. And I listened to the whole thing. And it was so much easier to listen to it than it was to actually read through it. Because, I mean, it, was, it just kept my attention. Because my alternative was painting, which is also quite hard to do. So, so I'm doing that. Oh, and by the way, with version, this week, they actually released their kids app. Did you guys download that yet? Get that app. It's fantastic. Get tonight, before you go to bed, get your kids out. Get your grandkids out if you got them with you. Go through. Start that process. Let them fall in love with the Bible a little bit more. But that's a tool for you guys. We didn't pay for it. Somebody did. But it's really good. It's version. I think they're, uh, they're probably like the number one downloaded app this week because it is just going everywhere. So, but back to this, this, uh, this, this location idea. So I'm reading through Ezekiel, and I'm just reading, listen, listening to Ezekiel, actually, and it says there's this prophecy given by Ezekiel about the city of Tyre. Now, Stephen, would you just help me out? Is it Tyre or Tyre? Tyre. I just wanted to ask him because the last three times I spoke, I've mentioned him in my message, and I didn't have him in this one, and so I needed to plug him in somewhere. <laughs> so Tyre is 60 miles northwest of Nazareth. It's on the Mediterranean coast. And uh, it was prophesied against by Ezekiel basically because in Ezekiel 24, uh, they, they laughed pretty much whenever Jerusalem was taken over by, by Babylon. They said, oh, this is great. This is actually to our benefit. We're going to get rich over this because a lot of the trade that was going to Jerusalem is now going to come to us. And these guys were business folk. I mean, they were very, 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 very powerful. And there's your city. There's the, there's the, the mainland, the old city of Tyre is on the coast, and then there's this island. And we'll show you the, what it looks like today here in a second. So here's the, here's the scripture out of Ezekiel 26. It says, In the 11th year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, 
Because Tyre has said of Jerusalem, Aha! The gate to the nations is broken, and its doors have swung open to me. Now that she lies in ruins, I will prosper. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring many nations against you, like the seas casting up its waves. It goes on and continues on several verses later. It continues in this prophecy and says, They will plunder your wealth and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and demolish your fine houses and throw your stones, timber, and rubble into the sea. I will put an end to your noisy songs and the music of your harps will be heard no more. I will make you a bare rock and you will become a place to spread fishnets. You will never be rebuilt for I, the Lord, have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. So I'm listening to this tear, and then later on, um, not in my listening to the Bible, but just later on, I'm, I'm Googling, doing some research on something else on, for a message, and tear po- Tyre pops up. And it starts talking about Tyre and Alexander the Great. And I'm like, well, this is interesting. So this is just, this is just history. In fact, if you, go, if you go home and Google T-Y-R-E space A, it'll pop up Alexander the Great. It's like well-known, historical, it's in Persian history, it's in Phoenician history, it's in Babylonian history, it's in world history. It's just, it's not just some story. I want to tell you what happened in Tyre because after all, location matters. That's kind of what I want to establish up front. This prophecy is given, and in parts of the prophecy, it's talking about, you know, I'm going to send nations against you. Well, the Babylonians come pretty quick, like 13 months into it, they're, they're there, and they do a lot of damage. They do a 13-year siege on the actual coast city of Tyre. And then they, they're in control and they leave. And then a little bit later, the, um, the Persians do some damage to the cities. Another nation comes. And then a long time later, like 300 plus years later, this prophecy still hasn't been totally fulfilled um, because this little part about the, uh, you know, I'm going to, they said they will plunder your wealth and loot your merchandise. That all happened. They will break down your walls and demolish your fine houses. Mm, that's happened. And throw your stones, timber, and rubble into the sea. That part hadn't happened yet. But yet as the prophecy, and said so this Bible is inspired, it's got to happen sometime. And so probably in those years, people may have just forgotten about the prophecy. Maybe they were looking for it. But here's what happened. Alexander the Great comes through. The people of Tyre say, hey, we're your friends. You know, we want to be in... in and, you know, a good relationship. And so he says, okay, well, then let me come and worship at your, at your coastline, for, or your, your, your island fortress, which was known as to be impenetrable. I mean, it was just, it, the, the waters were deep. The, it was always crazy waves. You couldn't even get boats up to it. The walls were 150 feet high. This place had never been taken. There was no technology at that time that could defeat this place. He says, let me go out there and worship. And they're like, I don't think so. So they killed the ambassadors that were asking them that, and they threw those guys over the, over the walls into the sea. Alexander the Great found, about it, found out about it, and he's not called the Great for nothing. And so he decides to go in to the city of Tyre, the one on the coast, and starts pulling all the rocks and all the, the cedar and all the, the timbers and all the rubble, and he starts throwing it into the water. And he builds a causeway, a bridge, 300 feet wide, all the way out to that island. You ever heard this story? Google it tonight. Look it up. It's really, really interesting. And as they get closer and closer and closer, then he wages war. They get all the way out there, and they destroy that place. And so when, and what ended up happening is the, the original city on the coast was completely bare to a place where fishermen then come and dry their nets. There's nothing there because all the stones, all the rubble, all the, the, the timber was taken and thrown in 
to the sea, just like the scripture said. And then they defeated it, and, uh, and it was never rebuilt. In fact, let me show you a current picture now. You see the real thin, the thin part of land right there? That used to be water. The left part is the island, but after that causeway was built over the years, and this is 332 BC, over all these years, silt and sand and all this stuff is built up, and now it's just a piece of land. Isn't that pretty cool? If you miss the location part, though, in the prophecy, if you're reading the scriptures and you're like, eh, such and such a place, this guy did something, they prophesied against Tyre, I don't care what that is, I can't pronounce it, I don't know where it is. If you miss that part, later on, when the Lord connects the dots, because you're looking at something else or you're reading something else, you miss the bigger, play, the bigger story. The bigger story wasn't that they were prophesied against, the bigger story is that when the Lord prophesies something, when the Lord says something, it will be fulfilled. And of the thousands of prophecies that are hanging out there, well over like 75, 80% have all been fulfilled without error, and the ones that haven't will as the coming of the ages, you know, as the, as the end comes. And so whenever you read through that story, I'm like, man, because I remembered Tyre, I'm reminded that the Lord, his word is true, and his prophecies will be fulfilled. So with that in mind, location matters. I want to look at two scriptures, one in Genesis 37 and one in 2 Kings and uh, and when I look at the location, I'm just kind of letting you know ahead of time what we're, what we're going for. So Genesis 37. Now I'll tell you, this is about Joseph. You remember Joseph. He's, um, he's the youngest, young, younger sons, and his dad loves him the most. He's the favorite. The brothers hate him because they can tell that his dad loves them the, him the most. Um, he, he has a special coat, very ornament, more ornamentated, and some people say it's the multicolored coat. Um, he's, got this, he's treated differently, uh, all, this, all these things. Then he starts having dreams. Remember the dreams? I'm gonna, we all had a bundle of wheat, and my wheat stood up tall, and yours all bowed down to me. And then he tells them all that. It's like, that's not a good way to make friends. You know, that's, and, and so, of course, the brothers just despised him. So then we pick it up in verse 12. It says, um, now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring, them, bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? Oh, yeah, they've moved on from here, the man answered. I, I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. A little bit of pent-up anger from the brothers here. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Let's skip over a little bit. Pick up again in verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now, coincidentally, Dothan means two wells, or two cisterns. They took him and threw him into the cistern. Now, the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices and balm and myrrh, and, and uh, they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? 
Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and, now lay our ha- and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother and our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Now remember that Egypt part. That's kind of important for later because, again, locations matter in these stories. So in Genesis, you could easily talk about the immaturity and insensitivity of Joseph because, after all, he shared these dreams and he just kind of just flaunted it in front of his brothers and even his mom and dad. I mean, his mom and dad at one point were like, are you telling me we're going to bow down to you, really? So you could talk about that. You could also talk about the hatred of his brothers and how they allowed unforgiveness and anger to get to, to boil over and they didn't, they didn't deal with that. You could talk about that. You could talk about dad's favoritism and what that did to his family. You could talk about that. But instead, I just want you to recognize that it happened in Dothan so that we can move on to 2 Kings chapter 6, another story about Dothan. Let's move there. All right, this is one of my favorite stories in the, in the Old Testament. This is about Elisha. You know the story that, where it says, greater is he that's with us than he that's with them? This is that story. So it says, now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. Now this is the only time you can say such and such a place in the Bible because the Bible said such and such a place. So like in this time, it doesn't really matter. It's just, it's just the, the fact is he keeps trying to attack places and then Elisha keeps tipping the guy off so he can't, they, don't, they don't get anything. So basically what's happening here is these Arameans are going into Israel and raiding and stealing and grabbing slaves and stealing crops and then they're going back. So they're not like at full out war at this stage, but they're just like taking advantage of them. They're just jumping over lines, taking stuff and then going back. And they were doing this and it's just a great, great way to make some money and keep your soldiers busy. So this is all happening, but the problem is Elisha kept getting these words from God and then he would tell the king hey, they're coming to Saginaw, make sure Saginaw's grocery stores are cleaned out because we don't want, you know, they're coming, or make sure the people are gone. So that's kind of what's happening here. So the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place, indicated by the man of God, time and time again, Elisha warned the king that he was on his guard. So he's on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, will you not tell me which of you is for the king of Israel? And the officer said, none of us, my lord, the king, none of us officers are, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Then he says, go find out where he is so I can send men to capture him. I think that's just brilliant. He knows what we're saying in here. Well, go get him. We're coming after him. I would have, like, wrote a note or something <laughs> Do you know sign language? Let's do sign language. But the Lord would have known that too. So the report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. All right. It's nighttime. Elisha is in bed. His servant is, is waking up the next morning. And he gets his cup of coffee. And he looks out to the beautiful sunrise. And ah, he sees this army that's already there. It says, when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots have surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? Don't be afraid. I like Elisha. There's, something, there's a story in here about peace. There's a peace that comes from knowing God. He's at peace. Plus, probably he got the tip last night before he went to bed. 
from the Lord. And he just, he's at ease. You know, how many know that the storm can be raging around you, but because you're, you're in Christ, you're at ease. There's a peace. That doesn't mean you're happy. It doesn't mean everything is well. It just means there's a peace because you know that you might be in the midst of a storm, but all of it's in the midst of God's hand. And, there, and I can live with that. So he says, don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened his servant's eyes, and he looked up, and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So if I'm here, if Elisha's here, all around Elisha was chariots and soldiers on fire. (laughs) And then outside of that ring was the enemy. As the enemy came down towards him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and there they were inside Samaria. They're like at the Israeli home base. And their eyes open and they're like, this is not good. So when the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, Shall we kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? And he said, Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill men you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them, and after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away, and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. Quickest way to get rid of an enemy is to make them your friend. And the scripture says in the New Testament and the Old Testament, it talks about making your enemies your friend. It talks about loving your enemies. In fact, um, in, uh, in Proverbs 25, 21, it says, it says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Does that sound like what Elisha just did? Oh, man, I'd rather just kill him. But that's not the Lord's way. Uh, Proverbs 21 is actually quoted in Romans 12. It says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. I always liked that part. The heaping burning coals. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, if you don't have a good study Bible, you ought to get one because you can do a lot of damage and get yourself confused when you read things like heat burning coals on people's head and like waiting around for that to happen. My study Bible says, if your enemy is hungry, says some take this verse to mean that showing kindness is the best and most appropriate way to overcome those who hurt or oppose us. Such gracious actions will get back at them emotionally more than harsh retaliation or it may win them over to a favorable relationship. Others interpret the passage in light of the ancient Egyptian ritual in which a guilty person, as a sign of repentance, carried a basin of hot coals on his head. In this case, the meaning would be that showing kindness to an enemy may cause him or her to change. Either way, doing good to our enemies, repaying evil with good, may cause them to be ashamed of their hurtful actions. As a result of our gracious example, they may eventually open their lives to God and receive his forgiveness. But even if our enemies remain hostile towards us, God will still reward us for our kind actions and our obedience to the scriptures. 
So in this 2 Kings 6 scripture, it's happening again at Dothan, and we could easily talk about how to treat your enemies, and I think it's probably a good reminder for all of us to treat our enemies with love. And it also said there, realize it says, when possible, you're going to have certain situations where a fight has to happen. <laughs> I mean, like war, there's a, even in Ecclesiastes, it says there's a time for peace, a time for war. I'm not against, you know, war. It's just too many times we're quick to go to war, you know, right away. And I'm not, I'm not talking about politically here. I'm talking about in our lives. Saying we're too quick to jump to that. Let's just, let's go. Let's do it. But that's not, the Lord would say, love your enemies, feed them. We can talk about treating your enemies. We can talk about gifts of knowledge. That is a gift that's still available to us today. We realize that. The gift of knowledge. Because Elisha just keeps receiving this knowledge. It's, it's, it's from the Lord. There's no way he would know it otherwise. It's the Lord. Just, he, he still gives us that. How many parents need a gift of knowledge when dealing with their, their kids today? Teenagers today. I need a gift of knowledge. Uh, my wife needs a gift of knowledge for dealing with me. I mean, it's like, what is he doing? I need a divine inspiration here. Uh, so we could talk about that. How many kids need a gift of knowledge for dealing with their parents? Because sometimes parents can exasperate our, their kids, right? I mean, that happens no matter how old we get. So we need gifts of knowledge. That's available to us. We could talk about that, but we're not, except for what I just said. Uh, there's physical and spiritual blindness. We could talk about that. You know, God made your eyes. He could adjust them. You know, some of us need some adjusting today. But there's spiritual and there's physical blindness. There's a spiritual realm. And while Elisha's servant wakes up and he just sees this army, Elisha's like, seriously, we got it. There's a spiritual realm. The fact is the reality that you think is reality is not really reality at all. It's the vapor. The scripture says it's a vapor. It passes like that. It's gone. But what's going to last for eternity is the spiritual realm. What we think is the real deal is not the real deal. It's like just that. And it's gone. So there's all that going on. And we can, we can even pray that the Lord would open up our, our spiritual eyes so we can see what's really going on in our situations. You could also talk about fear not in there. The script, I mean, Elisha's servant wakes up. And he's like, just don't be afraid. Fear not. There's 366 accounts of the Bible saying fear not. And every single time it's followed by a fact. And the fact is greater is he that's with us than he that's with them on this one. So 2 Kings 6 talks about Dothan as well. This is the part where I tell a personal story or I just cut right to the end. What do you want? Cut right to the end, Pastor Dan says. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he said personal story. I promise this will all make sense by the end. I'm not the most, most uh, traditional of speakers, but I'm working on it. When I was 19, my wife and I were accepted into this, this youth camp, this Christian youth camp. It was a sports camp out in Arkansas, near Mount Ida, Arkansas. And um, when we got there, we were put through a one-week orientation. So we were actually one of the counselors, basically, for that entire week. So much fun. It was just an awesome camp. I mean, they did everything over the top. It was amazing. Well, after about four or five days of this orientation, we wake up. We're already pretty tired. We don't sleep a whole lot, and we go pretty hard all day. So we wake up. We're hungry. We stumble up to the cafeteria, and usually we just walk in. Everything's like clockwork. They don't miss a beat. We usually just walk in, but this time we stand outside the door, and then the crowd keeps gathering, and about, after about 10 minutes, we're still standing there, and then the, one of the leaders comes out and says, okay, got a situation. From the electrical, he's lying to us. We find out later. The electricity's uh, not working in the kitchen, so Instead, I want you to go back to your bunks and uh, put on some uh, tennis shoes, grab a sleeping bag and a bottle of water. You have five minutes, go. And we run back, because if they say five minutes, it's five minutes, and you better be back. So we run, we get our three things, and we come back, 
He says, all right, we're separating them into 10 people groups. So there's about 100 of us counselors being trained that week. So he separates us, and we all get into a 15-passenger van, every group, and then we just kind of pour out into the Ozark Mountains, down country roads and around corners and through, like, I mean, we have no idea where we're at. After about 30, 40 minutes of driving, I think they were going in circles and back and stuff, but we're not even paying attention. This is going to be a fun adventure. They finally stop. Our group, we're all separate all over the, the Ozarks now. We're separate. Drops, off, drops us off and says, okay, guys, um, here's a topographical map, a compass. Topographical map is like an elevation map. You'll notice that there's not very many words on this map, and you'll notice you're in the middle of the Ozark Mountains. But here's your compass. Here's your map. There's a mark on there, pretty far off. I'm not going to tell you where you're at, but it's pretty far off. Um, there's a checkpoint on that mark, and uh, go get it. See you later. Gets back in his car and drives away. I'm like, okay. Now, granted, we've already missed breakfast. So we're like, okay. We found out quickly that we had a hunter in our group because none of us had a clue what we were doing. We were like, does anybody have GPS? No! Plus, it's like 1999, so there was none of that available to us. So we, we start walking. And so the, gratefully, we had the hunter. And so we start going. And after about an hour, we pretty much knew kind of where we were based on hills and a creek we found, some things like that. So we kind of figured out where we were. And within about two hours of walking, we knew where we were. And we'd already backtracked a couple times to try to figure that out. So we start walking. After lunchtime, we found checkpoint one. And there was a man standing there. And he said, okay, congratulations. Woo! Here's some clues to checkpoint two. We take it. Okay, Hunter, lead us. And so we're just walking. Now, I didn't tell you earlier, but Amber is in my group. We totally lucked out. They put us in the same group. We were both at this camp. We were just dating at the time, but we were in the same group. And so, so we're going. So the 10 of us start going again. And after several hours, we find checkpoint two. And nailed to the side of a tree is a note for checkpoint three. Whew. So we take out again. And now, let me just say this. this is, we've missed breakfast. We've now missed lunch. And we've been walking all day. And all we have is a bottle of water. So we're going. And uh, I, later I made millions of dollars on this lawsuit, by the way. I didn't ever tell you that. <laughs> so we start walking again to checkpoint three. I can't remember if there was three or four, but regardless, at, at 9 o'clock, after dark, we show up to the last place. We're the first group. Yeah, thanks for Crocodile Dundee that was, that was leading us because we had no idea what we were doing. We're the first group. And the guy says, okay, here's a tarp. Rest until the rest of them get here. At almost midnight, the last of the 10 groups show up. Now, we're pretty grateful, even though we're starving and we're tired and we're cranky and the character within us is coming out in good and bad ways. I mean, we had persevered. We'd pushed through. We'd helped people across the creeks. We had, we had hit fence lines. We had to decide, are we going to trespass or are we going to go all the way around? Can we trespass? Are there any signs for trespassing? What's the best way? Should we go over this mountain or that mountain? My feet are wet. I'm starving. And we get there and we lay down on the tarp. And for like two and a half, three hours, we just wait for all the groups to get there. So we're at least getting to sleep. And then a siren goes off follow me. And we all walk up to the top of this hill near where we were resting. So now all hundred of us are all back in one group and we all march up to the top of this hill. And up on top, there's a few vehicles with their lights shining to the middle. And there's a table. And he says, okay, congratulations. I know you're tired. I know you're hungry. 
This is growing your character. This is the, your endurance is going to lead to character and hope and all. We don't want to hear any of that stuff. <laughs> we and he said, congratulations, you've done it. Consider yourself, um, you know, blessed for having experienced this. And we felt every. Anyway, he said, okay, grab a, grab a number. So we all line up and we go by and we pull a number out of the, the box. And there was a one, there was a two, and there was a three. He says, okay, who's got a one? Ten people raised their hand. All right, come on over here. And that table that was on top of this open hillside, the top of the hill, they come out and they, they drape a white tablecloth over it and they smooth it out. They put chairs, you know, and they, and they put china plates down, 10 of them. And they put silverware down next to it and there's a folded little doily. Is it a doily or is it a napkin? It was a doily that day. It's like there. And then... Out of one of the vans that was up there, they started bringing these meals, these plates, and they're covered, and they put the plate down, they pulled the thing back, and they had grilled chicken. Oh. I mean, vegetarians were ready to just eat it, like right then. I mean, it was just gr grilled chicken, and they had, they had mashed potatoes and gravy, and they had green beans, and then they had a roll with butter, like right next to it on another plate, and they had sweet tea. Oh, sweet tea. And then they had a carrot cake. I remember the carrot cake most of all. That just looked like a little slice of heaven right there, just right there next to it. I said, grab a seat, guys. And so the 10 people sat down. Don't start eating yet. We need to pray for our meal. Anybody get a two? Well, I raised my hand. I got a two. I got a two. I got a two right here. Two, 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 two. Anybody else with a two? 50% of the group had a two. I said, well, come on over here. I'm like, where's the bigger van? So he pulls out a box. So said, get you one of them. So we reach in there, we get in the line, we were like, what's in that thing? Ooh, it's a Schlotzky's meal or something. <laughs> no, we reach in there and we pull out a bag of granola. Not a big bag, a bag that fits in your fist when it's closed bag, a granola. <laughs> Ziplocked, so it's safe. I'm like, okay, thanks. So we get this granola and I'm like, I, I, I like theirs better. So we get, I get mine and says, anybody get a three? And my wife raises her hand along with 40 other, or 39 other people, 40% of the group, and says, okay, um, you guys don't get anything. You guys are eating like third world countries tonight. You people with a, a bag of granola, you're eating like second world developing countries. And uh, the people at the table, congratulations, you live in Europe or the United States of America or uh, first world countries. All right, let's pray. And we prayed and we ate. Now, I'm embarrassed to say that as we started to eat, the first thing I did, not, not embarrassed to this part, the first thing I did was I took my meager little portion of granola and I halved it. And, I was, and it was like, like, like pouring gold dust out of your hand. It was just, <laughs> I went over to my wife or to be and said, here you go, honey. <laughs> That's it. And, then, and, and, and it's funny. Then we're like, okay, we can either eat the whole thing at once or we can just do this. <laughs> I don't remember which one I did, but it didn't last long. So we, we ate our granola. And then some people at that point, especially the threes, some people got really mad. Like some people stomped off. They didn't say a word. They just kind of stomped off then, because it's still nighttime. And they said, well, we'll, we'll reconvene in the morning. So we all have our sleeping bags. And some people like grabbed their sleeping bag and kind of went off to the edge of the woods. And just, and they were mad. 
And other people just like had the, the fantastic character and they just knew that this was a test and they knew that they were going to do it. And they were fine. They just laid down, even though they were starving and their feet were wet and all that stuff. And then, but I found myself at the tin top table, not sitting there, but I found myself there begging for food. <laughs> 12 hours removed from normal life. I'm begging for food. And I'm not, I didn't like go up there and like get on my knees and say, grovel, 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 food, food. I didn't do that. <laughs> Way too sophisticated and cool for that. I was like, hook a brother up, man. Let me some carrot cake. I need some carrot cake. Hey, John, thanks, bro. I'll, I got you tomorrow. I was just joking and being funny, but I was getting food. And as soon as I got a piece of, <laughs> and then I'd give some to my wife. Or to be, you know, we were, we were, but it was so odd. I mean, to this day, I look back and say, man, 12 hours removed and I was begging for food. Just, man, I'm so much more fragile and needy than I thought I was. So as we ate that night, we were all on the same hill, the same location. Remember, we're talking about location today. And God was doing a lot of different work in a lot of different people that day. For me, he showed me how fragile I was. For other people, he was teaching them how to be content. You know, Paul says, you know, when I had a lot, I was content. And when I had nothing in jail, I was content. In all things, I'm content. In fact, at that point, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He wasn't talking about, like, I can make the varsity. He wasn't talking about, I can own a nicer home, or I can get a promotion. He wasn't talking about that. He was just talking about living in contentment. When I was rich, I was content. When I was poor, I was content. I can do all things. No matter what life comes my way, I can be content, and I can trust that I'm in the hands of God, and, I'm, and I'll be okay. Some people were learning that lesson that night. Some people were learning what it meant to, to endure, and what it meant to deal with their anger, and deal with their pain, and, and their character was being built. Some people learned how to be generous, and how to share, and the ramifications of not being generous and sharing. You know, those people at the tin top, they weren't the, necessarily the luckiest people. Sure, they had a meal in front of them, but they knew that we, they were going back to the same camp with the rest of us. And if they, like, sat there and did this number, the, I mean, even though they were hungry, they, they would have had to give account for that. And so we were all learning different lessons. Even though we were in the same hill, in the same location, they were all learning very, very different lessons. We likely spent Thanksgiving thanking God for our 2 Kings chapter 6 moments. God just showed up. There was an enemy coming in. It opened, their, opened my servant's eyes. Bam! The, the army of God was around them. And we, we probably spent Thanksgiving thanking God for those moments where God showed up in my family my grandma was healthy, you know, my, my, I got a new promotion at work, you know, we got the bill, the debt paid off, you know, our kids succeeded in this, or our family did that. We probably spent Thanksgiving thanking God for those things. But what about the Genesis 37 moments? What about Joseph in the bottom of that well as his brothers have thrown him in there, abandoned him, and he's sitting there and he's saying, God, would you rescue me? God, would you bring me back to my family, my father? God, where are you? Are you going to come now? Oh, I hear voices. I hear footprints. Oh, it's slave traders. Oh, they're putting 
bonds on my hands and they're marching me behind camels and I'm going to Egypt. I don't want to go to Egypt. I want to go home. And oh no, God, you've abandoned me. God, where are you? Are you real? God, oh. But you guys know the rest of the Joseph story, right? How he delivers everybody. How basically his wheat gets rises up, his, his bunch of wheat rises up and all the others bow down to him. You know that's happened later on when his brothers came back because they were so hungry for food, but God needed to get him to Egypt and he could have done it all sorts of ways and I don't think it was God's will that he got thrown into slavery, but God sure did use it. You think maybe in that moment, jo- Joseph was saying, oh God, I just want to, th- before I eat this turkey, I just want to thank you for my brothers throwing me in that pit. That's so sweet of them. That was just, I appreciate that. No, he didn't do that. But you think later on in his life, he looked back and said, wow, in order for God to do those things he told me he was going to do, I had to get to Egypt. And that's how he chose to get me there. Do you think maybe he did that at some point? I'd like to, since we just came off of Thanksgiving, and we've just thanked God for all the Elisha awesome moments, I'd like us to take a few minutes and just think and say, okay, Lord, what is it that I'm disappointed with you about right now. You were supposed to come through in such and such a way and you didn't. I'm like still in the well. In fact, maybe I'm not even in the well anymore. I've been pulled out, but it's not to go home. It's to be taken into slavery. Okay, in this moment, I want us to think, where are the areas of our life that maybe it didn't end up the way we thought? Maybe grandma didn't get healed. Maybe you didn't get the promotion. Maybe you even got a demotion. Maybe your kid didn't succeed in that area, maybe it just didn't turn out the way you thought. And yet, in light of what Pastor Dan said last week, somewhere, (laughs) our worship is not based on our circumstances, but on the character of God. Hmm. Can you think of of an area of your life today that, okay, this isn't turning out like I thought? Do you think you could thank God in the moment for it. Now, I'm not saying thank God for that bad thing. It may be something really terrible that happened to you. But in the moment, do you think you could thank God and just say, you know what, I thank you, God, that I'm in your hands. I thank you, God, that even though my eyes are not open to what's really going around me right now, I thank you that I know that there are angels and there are, um, there's your presence that's with me. And so with that in mind, I'd like the worship team to come up and since it is Thanksgiving, um, I would hate to, to le- let our Thanksgiving fall short. How about instead of just looking to the past at what he, those Elisha moments that he's brought us out of, how about we look into the future and say, you know what, this isn't where it's going to be, and I don't know how it's going to be, but I just want to thank you in the moment for this. Even before it happens, I want to give you thanks for it. And I want to just commit myself to continue to trust that you're working in my life. Why don't you guys stand up? We're going to praise God in all circumstances, even if we don't praise God for all circumstances. Our worship is not based on our circumstances, but on the character of God. And how many know that the character of God is worth praising right now? God is faithful to you.